0: Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Nice and brisk. Walk outside, you woke up. boop, Just like that. Um, I welcome you to MacArthur Park and to our Bible class. We're going to have everybody together, so I'm going to go ahead and get started so as to allow our speaker plenty of time uh, to cover uh, Matthew 18. This morning, I have a couple of announcements I want to be sure to mention that um, I hope you'll be paying attention to. Financial Peace University, we offer these courses once a year, February, March, and April. And we have two classes beginning, one on Sunday afternoons and one on Wednesday afternoons, beginning next Sunday. And so um, we, we've got a good group that's started, but we need some more. So if you're interested, we'd love for you to participate. You can sign up back in the fel- family room. There's a, a, one of the sign-up stations has an information sheet. And uh, a place to sign up and please mention whether you're interested in Sunday or Wednesday. If you have any questions about that, please see me or Jerry Collins or Daryl Rand's We're uh, working with that and would love to share this about you. Financial Peace is just a great course. It's not just about debt, though it is at the beginning. But it's 13 weeks focused on how you can understand all there is to understand about your finances. Insurance... Um, Uh, investments, different nuances of what we have to deal with in our money life. And so it is an excellent course uh, essentially taught by Dave Ramsey uh, through DVD and I think that you will find it quite useful. The thing that I've always found it most useful for for me when I've done it is the fact that I did it for 13 weeks. Helps you develop some good habits because we have a hard time with our habits financially. Uh, So I encourage you to participate if you can. It's going to be really good. Now, the other thing I want to mention is the couple's Valentine's dinner. Richard has told me this is the last Sunday to sign up, so we want to be sure to have a full fellowship hall. We've got a sign-up station out in the family room on one of the tables, and so please uh, be sure to to fill that out and uh, sign up for that coming up on February the 11th. It's going to be a wonderful time. They always do a great job. Now, Let me be sure to mention for this day what's going to be happening this morning. We are doing, um, let's go to the next slide, Journey to Peace. And then during the sermon, Jim is going to be focused on the journey to higher righteousness. This afternoon, we're coming back together again at 2.30 in the fellowship hall. 2.30, and we'll be focusing on Journey to Greatness. And then at 4, A Passionate Journey. So this is what we're going to be doing this afternoon. There will be no... Sunday evening service tonight. Nothing at 6. Communion will be served for those who cannot participate this morning. I do want to mention right now that inside of your bulletins is the note sheet for today. If you did not participate yesterday and don't have a notebook, then we have note sheets for this morning's class and sermon on the one sheet of paper. And so be sure to notice that. Right now, I'd like to ask everybody to stand. We're going to sing Humble Yourself in the Sight of the Lord. And if you would, please move to the front. It will be so much easier for people coming in later. If you'd like to, come to the front so Jim can see you real easily.
1: Morning, let's all sing out. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will live. Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, and he, he, died for us, and He, He died for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. So humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up. And He will lift you up.
0: Matthew 18, verses 1 to 6. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child. And had him stand among them. And he said, i tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like a little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Today we begin a focus on the Gospel of Matthew. What we're going to be doing is focusing on a journey. We began this journey yesterday and looking at overall look at Matthew and all that it has in the five discourses of Matthew and those kind of things. And today we continue that journey. And then as we come together as Bible classes, adult Bible classes in uh, March, we will begin working our way through Matthew in detail. And so we're looking forward to this journey. Now, Dr. Baird is a true servant. I don't know if you heard me yesterday, but he received a frantic email from me on December the 29th asking him, of all things, to speak for seven hours, on the Gospel of Matthew, within one month. And he was gracious enough to say yes. And I thank Dr. Baird for that. As you know, Dr. Lynn McMillan had brain surgery right before Christmas. We had to make a change. And so Dr. Baird was willing to do that. Jim is an Oxford scholar. He did his bachelor's at O.C. He did a master's at Harding Graduate School in Memphis. And then he went to Oxford, England. And there he studied Christian evidences and philosophy, and he got his degree in that. And he has presented uh, lectures on that, just like he presented to us last night at the final session at seven thirty on Christian evidences: what, why we are to believe, the way we are to believe, and what you say to people who don't believe in God. So we had a good visit last night. But Jim is not just a scholar; he's very well read. But he is also a preacher at heart. He has returned to the school where his father taught, and he now preaches and ministers to college students. Over, he's done that for over 20 years, and he works at the Wilshire Church in Oklahoma City as well as teaching on the OC campus. So he has done a lot of different things throughout his life. Jim is married to Yolanda, the former Yolanda Wyrick. She's known by Yodi. That's what she goes by. And they're proud parents of two sons and a daughter, James, Taylor, and Elizabeth. So we're going to pray, and then Jim will teach us quite a bit about Matthew. Father, thank you so much for your blessings. You've given us a beautiful morning, Lord, and we know that that you are uh, absolutely amazing, bringing the cold air in. And Father, I thank you for the change of seasons. I thank you for your majesty and your creation. And Father, as we come together... This morning we come to focus on your incredible word, the Bible, and to focus specifically on the Gospel of Matthew. And Father, I pray that as we read these words and as Jim speaks to us, that we will be changed, that we will be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. Thank you for Jim. Thank you for his devotion to you and to the Word. And Father, it's through your Son we pray. Amen. Jim.
2: Thanks very much Doug. I appreciate that. I really appreciate the hospitality of uh the congregation here. This is uh this has been a great great visit uh and and I'm having a good time. I'm a little puzzled because when I came in, uh people said, "Well, how do you like our cold snap?" And I've heard words like brisk and ooh, the winter has got... So this is what you guys think is cold, right? This is how you do winter in Texas. Talk to me sometimes. But it is really good to be here. I'm very, very grateful, and we have had good discussions. Yesterday in the class, um, we actually put out note cards, and we got quite a few questions turned in on note cards, and I think they're going to continue to do that today. There'll still be some, and we might have a chance to answer some more of those. I'm going to answer several of those at the 2 2:30, 30 se- is it 2:30 it's 2:30 session i had one though that i thought was interesting and i and i'm going to ask do this one right now um, how would you respond to a skeptic who equates the miraculous birth of jesus and, and the appearance of the star as being the same type of legend associated with uh augustus caesar uh, uh, augustus caesar had a uh, legend of a comet that appeared when he was born, and he actually used that as one of his royal symbols as emperor, put it on a lot of his coinage and so forth. And so is, is, is Matthew just engaging in the same kind of legendary amplification of the story of Jesus? Uh, well, uh, if you're a skeptic, I suppose you might say that. We do not know We do not have any extra-biblical sources that talk to us about this star. So if you uh, would only be convinced if Josephus mentions it or the Chinese mention it or the Egyptians or something like that, then I suppose I don't have anything to convince you. There were uh, some fairly remarkable astronomical uh, phenomena that took place in about 7 BC. In particular, there's conjunctions of uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Mars which are pretty rare, usually only happen about every 900 years, Uh, that could be what the wise men were looking at and uh, might fit some of the timing that we're thinking of. But uh, actually, you know, that's what we have. We have Matthew mentioning it. And uh, that's kind of interesting because sometimes this this question is phrased the way I like it to be, but uh, sometimes the question is, Well, I know it's talked about in the Bible, but do we have any evidence that it happened? Seriously? Um, It's true that in Western culture, uh, we for centuries grounded our belief system on the Bible and had a belief in the Bible as the Word of God. And it is true that over the last... 300 years, there's been a dramatic shift for many people away from giving that level of confidence to the Bible. It's sad, but that has happened in our culture. Unfortunately, I think in reaction to the high view of Scripture that Christians have and and that our culture traditionally has had, people have moved really badly in the opposite direction. Even if you're a skeptic, you shouldn't treat the words of Matthew or any other biblical source, as false. You at least believe that this is a first century document. You at least believe that it is written by somebody who is meaning to tell the truth. And it is evidence. If Put it this way. If we had never seen the Gospel of Matthew, and this year some archaeologist digs it out of the dirt and finds it, what would we say about it? Skeptics and Christians alike, what would we say about it? Well, we would be interested in it as a New Testament document. We would say, what an interesting new source of evidence about Jesus. Scholars would go crazy. They would write dissertations uh, because here we have new data. So when you're talking to skeptics, let me urge you to at least argue for this much. You don't have to say, believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, but you do have to say, treat these documents like you would treat any other first century bits of evidence. So how much evidence do we have that the star appeared as Matthew says it has? Well, we have a first century document that says it does, and one that's proved to be quite reliable, even from the skeptic's point of view. So I kind of wanted to make that point as we started off this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would like it if you would turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we, are, we did an overview of Matthew yesterday, and now we're just kind of picking little bits and looking at them in greater detail to, to see what they have to show us. And really, Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20 overlap some of Matthew's intentional structure, but, it, but it, is a, it is a little treatment of the issue of status and conflict and how we manage those kinds of things. Sort of what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do to deal with this issue? So in this class, we're going to talk about that. In the 2.30 class, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 20 that deals some more with those topics. Because Jesus got put on the cross by people who were trying to hold on to their status. Jesus got put in on the cross by people who were trying to make sure they didn't lose their position in society. The leaders of the Jews in particular, the chief priests and the Pharisees, were terrified that Jesus was going to stir up some sort of rebellion and cause the Romans to come swooping in and just just wipe everything out and that we'll lose our place, we'll lose our position. Caiaphas ends up saying, it's better for us to kill one guy illegally than to let this happen. We have that recorded for us in John. And so uh, these status games can do major damage. One of my favorite... Uh, oh, I don't know, cartoons or it's actually a photo that's been doctored, photoshopped uh, document, is a, um, it's a rearview mirror, you know, one of those external rearview mirrors. It's got the little words down at the bottom, objects in mirror, but it's been changed, objects in mirror are losing. When you drive, do you drive like that? Uh, seriously, I've got to get up here. I want you guys to try something for me. This is an audience participation thing. You ready? you got to be with me. Take your foot and point your toe. Can you do that? Do it again. I don't, I don't believe you. P- take your foot, point your toe. Point your toe. All right, now pull it up. Now point your toe. Now pull it. You guys aren't doing this. Now you've got to enter into the spirit of things. Pull it up. Which is harder to do? Is it harder to pull it up seriously? Oh, it's so much harder. When you're on the highway out here, 410, and there's a car that needs to be in your lane, which is harder to do? Pull it up. It's just so much easier to romp on it because I don't want to be in last place. I don't want to be left behind. And human beings, what Paul would call our flesh, spurs us to compete with each other. It spurs us to always be asking the question, who's the greatest? What's the question that chapter 18 starts with? Who's the greatest? Who outranks who? We see it all the time. You go to work tomorrow, the people in your office are going to be checking out your haircut to see if it costs more than their haircut. They're going to be looking at your shoes to see if you paid more. They're going to watch what car you drive and what clothes you wear and all of those things. We are constantly... We can't turn it off. We are constantly checking each other out to see... Who outranks who? Who makes more money? Who gets more power? Who has to take calls from who and who can just ignore calls when they come in? That, it's, it's all about status. And Jesus is actually at war with our status gains. The disciples are arguing who's the greatest. He brings a little child and puts him front and center. And he says... Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've heard sermons all my life about how cool children are and how they're sweet and how they're, uh, you know, innocent and, you know, we've got to become like a child and so forth. I don't know. If you think children are innocent, you just haven't been around one recently. But but clearly that's not what Jesus is talking about here what part of being a child is Jesus focusing on in the middle of an argument about who outranks who he brings in a kid who outranks nobody in Jewish society everybody outranks a kid and he says you want to know what you got to be be this your status needs to be this status. You need to just give up on your status competition, on your status games. And, and Jesus is real serious about that because he knows the kind of harm, the kind of damage that can be done if people are grasping after sh- status. Verse 5, he says, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. We care for those who are children. And I think at this point he's shifting over to, when you think about the church, welcoming those who are childlike, who are the poorest, who are the weakest, who are the least well-informed, who are the least uh, socially adept. When you welcome those people who normally, in normal society, would have very low status because of those various characteristics, when you welcome them, guess what? That's me. That's me you're walking up to and talking to and making feel welcome. That's me that you're inviting to your house to make sure that they uh, feel welcomed into the community. That's that's me that you are caring for. That's why we welcome the childlike among us. And look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for them to have a huge millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And then he goes on and says, you know, if your foot is causing you to stumble, he's going back to what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if your foot's causing you to stumble, what should you do? It is totally worth amputating your foot rather than to to fall into this sin, which I just said you should take a giant millstone, hang it around your neck, and go swimming. Totally worth it. He's not, when he used it in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about lust, and you know, the, the sin that we get dragged into because of lust. But here, he's not talking about that. He's saying, your status competition. Who gets their way and who doesn't? Who gets to win the argument and who doesn't? Who gets the last word? Those things, when they spill out over into the church or into spiritual areas where where the childlike people can be hurt, God sees the damage you're doing. That's what he's saying. It's a very sobering talk. I heard of a couple that were driving down the road and they were arguing about something, as married couples often do. Not us, but, but many married couples, I'm told, argue sometimes. And they were both accusing the other of being sort of stubborn. And, um, and, and, and finally, they just quit talking. And they were just mad at each other and they just quit talking. And they drove past the field and there were a bunch of mules out in this field. And the husband pointed to the mules and said, relatives of yours? And she looked over there and she said, as a matter of fact, they are. They're my in-laws. Our little little games that we play of one-upmanship, they're kind of bad enough out there in the world, but when we bring them into the church... We, we may be oblivious to the damage we're doing to the, the most immature and the most vulnerable Christians among us, people who maybe they just haven't been Christians very long or maybe because of you know, things that are going on in their life, besetting sins or tragedy or illness or whatever. For whatever reason, they're in the childlike position. They need protection. And instead, what they see is those who are supposed to be leaders, those who are supposed to be examples, Fighting with each other over who has the best interpretation of Scripture or, or, or who gets this position or who gets to have the last word or who has the... Uh, the and, and it just rips them up. And Jesus says, if you cause one of those little ones to stumble, God will notice that. God will notice that. He is at war with our status gains, because they cause so much damage and cause so much pain. So, as he continues this chapter, he he says, this is the way we're going to do it. This is how we're going to fight. I believe Matthew uniquely presents Jesus as the king. He says, the kingdom is here. It is at hand. It's right here. We're already living the kingdom. How do we fight wars in this kingdom? All kingdoms got to fight. How do we fight wars in this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is announcing? And and Jesus persistently says, your real enemy is evil. Your real enemy is sin. And that's what you're going to fight. Let's take this fight to Satan. Let's cause him to be sorry he ever started this. Why does Jesus emphasize going to the lost sheep? Down there in verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Why do we go looking for the lost sheep? Why do we do that? People who are the vulnerable ones that have been perhaps captivated by sin, taken away by discouragement, uh, trapped by lust or drugs or alcohol, they're they're not here this morning. I don't know where they went. They're lost. Why do we go looking for them? Why do we go looking for them? We didn't get lost. We didn't get drunk. We didn't get pregnant. We didn't ha- misbehave. We're not trapped in depression. We're fine. Here we are at church. It's not our fault that they got lost. Why do we bother? Jesus is God's, Jesus' whole life is God's answer to that. He summarizes it in this little parable. It's not God's fault that any of us are as messed up as we are. And God would be perfectly within his rights to just leave us to our fate. By our own weakness, by our own stupidity by our own wickedness and sin we have alienated ourselves from God. Put up a barrier, a wall, a separation. And, and God's already given us life and everything that we have. He's perfectly within his rights to say well that's it for them. They made their choice. It's not his fault what we've made of our lives. And amazingly he sends his king, Jesus as the shepherd together in the lost sheep. You're here because God came looking for you. So why do you go looking for lost sheep? That same reason. You're here because God came for you. God extended his grace to you and and you, when the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to do it, you are also going to go looking for others. doesn't always work. It's not always easy. When you go look for the lost sheep, it rarely looks like it does in the flannel grass. Let me warn you. You know, the, I love those flannel grass. Those are so cool. But you know, the shepherd and he takes the little sheep and the sheep usually has a smile, which how do you get a sheep to smile? You know, but the sheep is all comforted because he's in the shepherd's arms and the shepherd carries him back to the fold and everything. That's such a good picture. If you've ever actually done any sheep wrangling in God's church, in real life, the sheep, at least initially, kick you right in the face. They kick. They bite. They scratch. Where they are seems like a solution to their problems. It's a horrible solution. They aren't happy, but where they are away from God seems like a solution to their problems. And you look like you're coming in and and taking away their solution. You look like you're coming in and messing up their life. Why don't you, Christians, just leave me alone? Just leave. Why? And, And you'll get attacked. Well, who are you to tell me what's wrong with my life? There's plenty of stuff I can list about you. And the more they know you, the more they can hurt you with that very thing. Sheep kick. So now what do you do? Now what do you do? Well, the next two sections in 18 kind of help us to deal with that problem of retrieving sheep. What do we do? How do we handle that? Look down at verses... And I, uh, Verse 15 and following. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. We're in the sheep retrieval business. And, and, and so we don't just say, fine, you do what you, know, what you think is best. We are going to do our best to bring people out of where they are into a place of safety. Jesus is at war with lazy tolerance. Our society preaches tolerance a lot. Tolerance has become one of the key virtues of our society. But the more you listen to the rhetoric of tolerance, and especially the more you look at our society's practice of tolerance, you find out it has a very dark underbelly. Because the main drive, I'm pretty convinced, the main driving motivation for our society's love affair with tolerance is apathy. Apathy. It's not love. People spout things that sound sort of like love. Well, we just, know, we just don't condemn anybody. We just never would think of telling people that something's wrong with the way they're living their life. We just want to love people. We just want to love people. Well, yeah, you do want to love people. But, but if there's something wrong, it's not loving to let that wrong continue. If you can do anything to help it, I, my family has known the branches for a long time. I've known Charles and Sylvia for a long time. Charles, when you were in practice, if a patient comes into you who's got a issue serious enough to, for you to be involved, they do not want to hear you say, "Well, you know, I don't make judgments about brain issues here." You know, some people's brains function, some people's don't, but I just love everybody. You know, I don't want to go causing you pain by cutting and, you know, chopping and stuff. I just, I just love people. Well, you would get kicked out of your medical practice. You'd be, you'd, the AMA would take a dim view of that. There are things that are wrong. You have the power to maybe make a difference for the better. The loving thing to do is not to say, well, I just don't want to make waves. The loving thing to do is say, Get ready. We're going to do some cutting. We're going to make this better. Do you really believe that people's souls are at stake here? Is this just fake? I mean, is this just a game? People's souls are at stake. When sheep are lost, they're going to stay lost forever maybe if we don't go and intervene. And so Jesus says, we go. If they listen to us, we may have won our brother or sister back. Isn't that a great thing? That's the goal. If they listen to us, we may have won them back. They may kick us in the face for a while first. They may natter about all the things that are wrong with us first. But if in the end they listen to us, we have won our brother or sister back. That's an amazing thing. That's a victory for God. It's, it's incredible that we have the privilege, that God has allowed us the privilege to be involved in his work like this. Jesus is at war with sort of laziness that says, oh well, I'm just going to let them sort that out for themselves. He's also at war, incidentally, with being a jerk for Jesus. There are people who have come to believe of themselves that they have an unlisted spiritual gift. We have Various lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I've looked through those lists. I'm pretty sure the gift of criticism is never listed. And there are people who feel like, yeah, I'm just specially gifted at the ability of seeing what's wrong with you. I'm not sure that's actually the Holy Spirit. I think there may be a spirit at work, but I'm not sure it's holy. (laughs) Don't be a jerk for Jesus. Uh, Your goal is not to go into this situation where there is a true lost sheep thing going on. Your goal is not to go in there and make yourself feel better. Well, I said my piece at least. They they know what I think now. Great. Your goal is not to come away with your self-image intact. I'm going to just get in there, I'm going to say what I want to say, and I'm going to just barrage them with enough words and scriptures that they're just not going to be able to answer anything back, and and that's going to keep me safe. That's not your goal either. What does the text say your goal is? You're trying to win your brother or sister back. And so everything you do is shaped towards that, right? And that means being vulnerable. That means being open. When they start firing back all the stuff that's wrong at you, that means saying, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a fair cop. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's, that's honest. And I'm not here because I'm righteous. I'm here because both of us need Jesus. And we can do that without being jerks. We can do that without... Is saying, Oh, I don't care what happens to you. We can actually do what Jesus is saying. And he says, Do it. Go and talk to somebody. Let me ask you a question. Just thinking about just church life or, or other things, but just in church, how many disagreements do you think there have been that have caused trouble that are really just interpersonal problems? In churches. Sometimes quite severe problems, sometimes the kinds of problems that cause, oh, I don't know, little ones to stumble. That really have to do with maybe one or two people who just are tearing each other apart. Now let me ask you a follow-up question. You think about the disagreements you've had with people over your life. If you're honest, how many of those were due to misinformation? One person, or maybe both people, just not quite having all the facts. and and taking the few facts they did have and misunderstanding what they meant and jumping to a wrong conclusion and being all upset about it and the other side doing the same thing, and pretty soon we are slamming into each other and, you know, sending out shrapnel to all the people that are around us in the meantime. I would say that about 90% of all human conflict is at least partially due to stupidity, that we just don't have all the facts. When you and I are hurt by somebody, when somebody's really caused us pain, what's our first instinct? Somebody in church, somebody out of church, what's our first instinct? Who do we want to talk to first? Everybody else but the person. We're going to call up mom and say, Believe what happened to me in Bible class today. I want to call up the preacher and say, you know, you've got to do something about those deacons. I'm telling you, all right, we gotta got tell everybody else. And what does Jesus say, do? You go straight to that person. Because if you have misinformation, if you've gotten some of your facts wrong and you start telling everybody else, you're just doing Satan's work for him. You're just spreading more lies. That's what Satan is. He's the father of lies, and he's going,
1: oh, this is awesome.
2: This is great. Do some more of that. If you really make it, you know, kind of part of your morality, part of your Christian walk, that if I really have a problem that's bugging me with somebody, I'm going to try to get up the courage to go talk to that person. I'm going to try and get up the courage to go talk to that person. If you do that, let me tell you, you don't want to have that conversation unless you have really fact-checked carefully. That's embarrassing. Go in, get up your courage, get everything going, and then they say, oh yeah, by the way, what you didn't know was X, Y, and Z. And you just feel really silly. And so Jesus, by telling us to do this, by asking Christians to begin to incorporate this kind of behavior into our Christian walk, he is, he is helping us to do something that I think would eliminate about 90% of the kind of strife and status conflicts and fighting that, that often tears churches apart and, and tears other organizations apart too. Just go and talk to that person, just the two of you. Just go and do it. Now when Paul talks about this, if you want to make notes, you can jot down Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, where I think Paul expands on this. And he says, you need to be a spiritual person and you need to be a person who is uh, watching out that you yourself don't fall into temptation, the temptation of anger, the temptation of frustration, the temptation of selfishness, and so forth. Paul has some really good amplification, but the basic idea is you go to the person that's causing the problem. Try to deal with it in the most limited way possible. Because the ideal result is somebody's hurt you. Somebody's done something wrong. Somebody's in trouble. You go to that person, that person only. Only the two of you know about it. And it gets resolved and you've won your brother or sister over. That's the picture. If that doesn't work, take some witnesses. People get confused by witnesses. They think that means, you mean I have to have other people who saw it happen? No, (laughs) there's two senses of the word witness. One is, you know, obviously somebody who sees it but another is people who can add their encouragement to yours to help get a positive outcome. People who will stand by you and say, now, I know this is hard to hear, but I think that you know what, what you're being told is the right thing. People who can support you. And, and bring some people along and make, that, make it a more powerful appeal. And you continue to do that. And Jesus says, eventually you may have to involve the, the elders. Eventually you may involve the whole church. That can happen. Your goal at every step is not punishment. Your goal at every step is to win your brother over. Even if you have to take that last step where you say, until this is resolved, we've got we've to part ways. We can't be in fellowship. Even if you take that last step, you read what Paul says about that. He says the whole goal there is to win somebody over, to break them free of the grip of Satan. When you're in a fight with somebody, all we can see typically when we're in fights with somebody is just the pain that that person is causing us. And and Satan plays on that fact. Because when you're in a fight with somebody, all we can see is that that person's my enemy. Who is our real enemy? It's Satan himself. How would you like to make Satan's life miserable? I mean, he has done enough to you for you to want to get even with him. I mean, if you want to get even with somebody, don't get even with the people that Satan has manipulated and fooled and tricked. Let's go to the source. I wouldn't mind giving Satan a bloody nose for a change. How would you hurt a being as powerful and as strong as Satan? get a little of my own back from Satan himself. How would you do that? You can by doing what Jesus says. By doing this very thing. Because Satan has has taken possession of somebody who's trapped in sin. Satan has swooped down and grabbed one of the sheep. And he has a new toy to play with and torment. And if you want to get some revenge on Satan, instead of you adding to the mix and punching the sheep a little bit more, go and take that lost sheep back for Jesus. Go and take that person back. That's what you do. And and you will have won your brother or sister over, so we're told. We seek the lost because that's what Jesus did for us. Why do we forgive? Our last passage I want you to look at is down in verse 21. Peter, hearing all of this, says, well, uh, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You're talking about going to my brother and sister because my goal is to try and win them over. Those conversations rarely go smoothly. It's often very painful. There's a lot of defense mechanisms and and it hurts my feelings, and I feel vulnerable, and the other person feels vulnerable. But but what if it's it's sort of successful? The person who's really hurt me nevertheless says, you know, I I realize based on what you've said, I've got to do better, and I'm going to try. I'm going to try. How many times do I, how many chances do I give them? How many chances do I give them? Uh The rabbis, very near this time, maybe before this time, had already given a ruling. Said three or four times is plenty because, you know, if they're going more than three or four times, then they're probably not all that sincere. If you have to forgive somebody for the same sin three or four times, you kind of know that you need to wash your hands of them. And so Peter thinks he's going way above. He thinks he's got Jesus' wavelength. He said, seven times, Jesus! I bet it's like twice what the Pharisees say. Seven times. And what does Jesus do? He multiplies it, and I don't think he means 490. I think he just says, stop counting, Peter. If you're counting, you've missed the point. Because what's the point? The point is there are lost sheep. Their point is there's somebody who you, that you might be able to win over and your behavior is always geared not with you in mind but with those lost people in mind. If you're following me, I am God's king who came and the way I'm being king is to go to a cross. To sacrifice everything I am. To save lost people. If you're following me, then you're going to be that same thing. You stop thinking about how it makes you feel. You stop thinking about what's happening to you and you begin to do what it takes to reach out to lost people and to bring them in. So, seven times? Try 70 times seven. Or 70 times seven million. If they'd had an easy Greek word for million, I'm pretty sure he would have said that. Stop counting and do what it takes to bring in the lost. Do what you can to bring in the lost. I don't think you... I don't think that that always means that you put innocent people in harm's way of somebody who's trapped in sin and is doing that. And and I really would caution you against that. When children are being hurt, when the little ones are being hurt, you do have to do things to protect yourself. Forgiving doesn't mean not protecting those people. But... Forgiving means in whatever situation, whatever the situation is, I'm going to do the most, the, the, the most powerful thing I can think of doing that will help this person come out of the clutches of Satan, come out of the clutches of sin, and into the life that he is meant to have. Jesus tells this story about forgiveness in order to help us realize what our true spiritual situation is. Servants who you know, oh, uh, small amounts and big amounts, and, and Jesus uh, ends with the kicker, look down at verse 35. I don't have it to throw up on the screen, but you can just look at it in your actual Bibles. Uh, this is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother and sister from your heart. God expects each one of us to remember what He's done for us. That He came and has forgiven us. And He expects us to learn, to gradually learn to imitate Him. God does not expect you to be able to do this overnight, incidentally. And, 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 and that's not going to happen anyway. But God has given you, if you're a Christian, if you're baptized, God has given you a spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is in you as a voice calling you to the right behavior. And one of the things it calls you to is, could I, in this situation of great pain, where I've been caused pain and damage, can I overcome what's happened to me in order to do what's best for this other person, to give them the best shot at coming back to righteousness. Jesus' strategy here, he just lays it out in a few simple words, his strategy here seems to be to make it easy for somebody to come out of sin and difficult for somebody to stay in sin. To the extent that we have the power to put social pressure on people, that's the kind of pressure we should be putting. Instead of setting up a situation where it's really difficult to come out of sin. There's a bunch of hurdles you've got to climb over and a bunch of humiliations you've got to subject yourself to and a bunch of disapproving stares that you have to face. Uh, Setting up a Christian community that says, oh, if you will just make one move in the direction of righteousness, we are here rooting for you. And when you're making moves in the other direction, away from righteousness, away from the path of God, when you're moving into sin, The Christian community doesn't make that easy for you. They don't just sit back and say, well, you know, people got to make their own choices. They are in your face about it. They are in your face about it saying, no, please don't do this. I've tried that or I've tried things like it. Don't go down that path. Stay with Jesus. Stay with the path of righteousness. The, the ideal that Jesus is striving for is that we will make it extremely difficult for people to stay trapped in sin because we'll be confronting them about it. We'll be talking to them about it. And we will make the path wide open for them to begin making moves, moves back to righteousness. That's what the forgiveness is all about. We are here to forgive you as many times as it takes. We are here to try and help you put your life Back together. I think for a lot of us, we sort of think forgiveness is for wimps. You know? People who forgive, they mainly forgive because they're just cowards anyway on the inside. And I do think we think that. Does that bell mean anything to me? Five minutes? (laughs) Ha ha. Uh, We do, we think, you know, forgiveness is for people who are just, you know, socially chicken. They're afraid to stand up for themselves. You know, if you follow that train of logic very far, then you secretly think God's kind of a wimp. Because he's so forgiving. He's afraid to stick up for himself. And the opposite is the truth. God is so loving that he can't help but want us to experience just a smidge of the joy that he has. And he's reaching out to make sure that that happens. Forgiveness is our ability to begin to imitate that aspect of God. Forgiveness is our ability to begin to erase the pain that sin causes so that Everybody can move into the joy of being in God and with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you already, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. You already have the power to do this. You don't have to wait to heaven to have this part of the kingdom of God. You can do this right now. Forgive as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. Thanks very much.
0: Please remember, 2.30 this afternoon, we're going to be gathering together. I hope you plan on being here. We'll see you then.